good to be gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus and to have this burden for this message before us. It's a wonderful thing. I don't suppose we could say there's three people in the Bible who are better known than Abraham, Paul, and Jesus. And so all of us could probably preach these messages. As a matter of fact, Kenny preached half of mine tonight. But we're very thankful for the, the richness that we have of brothers and sisters whose hearts have been before the Lord studying his word, hungry in this time. And I do believe, despite the fact that we're all familiar with these people and with what the Lord has done, that the Lord can touch our hearts afresh and send us on our way, reviving his work in the midst of the year. We'd like to turn tonight to that passage that is our um, conference theme passage in Acts chapter 26. We want to begin at the beginning in Paul's Christian life as he meets Jesus. You know that he gives his testimony several times. And here to King Agrippa, he tells the story again. Let's begin in uh, verse 12 of Acts chapter 26. While so engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. 
So having obtained help from God, I stand uh, to you this day, testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Our Father, we come to you tonight at the beginning of this conference. We thank you already for the grace that has brought us together for this time. We thank you as you are strangely warming our hearts as we're worshiping and reuniting with brothers and sisters and talking and anticipating. Oh, we thank you for your many mercies to us new each day. And now, Lord, we need a special mercy as we've gathered together this evening with tired bodies, spirits that are willing, but the flesh is weak. Would you refresh us by your presence? And so grant us a hunger, renewed hunger for your word, that we may be attentive in this short time we have together. Oh, Lord, help us increase our capacity, increase our faith, increase the grace of obedience. We pray all these things depending upon you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We believe the Lord will grant us an open heaven as we talk about these matters of vision because it isn't a doctrine. It's the reality of the presence of the Lord himself. And this is always the fountainhead of all that really proceeds of life in this matter of Christian service. Our brothers will be sharing on the life of Christ, the life of Abraham. For me, I'm going to share on this matter of the life of Paul, and I'd like to do it by sort of looking at the impact, if you want to put it that way, of the heavenly vision at the, in the ver three stages of Paul's life. Um, Paul's Christian life can roughly be divided into three stages of 11 years. And I'd like to see the, the impact of this heavenly vision in each of these three stages. So that will be the background of the three messages that I give. And in each of these stages, I have uh, uh, felt the Lord put into my heart a paradoxical phrase that describes... Uh, something of that impact of this heavenly vision that Paul had in each of the stages. The first stage, the first 11 years, that, uh, those years of preparation spent mostly in Tarsus back home as a Christian growing. I want to talk about uh, the, this heavenly vision as the qualifying devastation. That's what I want for us to look at tonight. In those preparatory years, this heavenly vision of Christ himself was a qualifying devastation. And then there was those 11 years of his most fruitful activity and service before his imprisonment and other things, where he went from place to place, and you know his travels were legend and what he did was amazing. And during that time, I'm going to focus on this matter of his heavenly vision producing eccentric originality. 
And of course, I'll have to explain that because it doesn't seem to make any sense. And actually, it's a little bit paradoxical, but you'll, you'll understand as we take that up. Eccentric originality. This marked the second phase, uh, stage of Paul's ministry. And then the last 11 years before he was martyred, mostly spent in prison and waiting and waiting and waiting and suffering and limitation. Because, you see, in all three of these stages, we're tempted, you know, to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. But here in that final stage, those years of uh, suffering, I see that this vision that he's had of the Lord Jesus has given him what I'm going to call an inexhaustible emptying. So may the Lord help us try to make sense of those things. Now the first, this devastating, qualifying vision that Paul had. Now, there's a lot of testimony about this. Paul's encounter with the risen Lord devastated his life. And we have ample record of that in the scriptures. And we might note just in passing that Paul, whenever he got one shot to preach the gospel, he shared his own testimony of how the Lord met him and arrested him there on the road to Damascus. And so we have a number of places in the record where we have this testimony where Paul mentions time and time again the impact, this devastating impact of uh, Jesus' vision as he stood before it. This seems to be the very core of his gospel testimony that he gives here and there. Now, just by way of reference, as we're introducing Paul tonight, there's two passages that give us any indication at all about Paul as to his age. So I thought maybe you'd like to just note those for a moment. There in in Acts chapter 7, if you'll turn there, you'll just notice... In verse 58, this is, of course, the martyrdom of uh, Stephen as he's testifying. And uh, the men who were about to stone Stephen laid their coats down before Saul. And it says in verse 58 of chapter 7 that he was a young man named Saul. Now, most Bible scholars say that by young man, they meant that Paul was around 30 years of age. And the reason they say that is because... Uh, These letters that he soon after received as he went about the churches, harassing the churches, would not be given to any sort of teenage boy or some young man, but may even have been given to Saul as a new member of the Sanhedrin. Some believed that Paul was a, a young new member on the Sanhedrin, and this was a way of his proving himself. But anyway, about 30 years old marks this time when he was saved. And then we come to Paul near the end of his life, and in Philemon, in Philemon, that little letter, in verse 9, we just see this little passing reference as he's appealing to his friend. And as he's talking to his dear friend about Onesimus and all, he just comes in verse 9 and says, Yet for love's sake... I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And uh, if the years, as the Bible scholars count them, are correct, this is approximately 33 years later. So 
Uh, Paul is now over 60 years old. His body obviously beaten and um, uh, worn by his years of service and all that he's been through. Paul the aged, he calls himself. Well, we're going to be looking at this heavenly vision between these two periods of time. How would we describe the young Paul? This young man who we find on the road to Damascus. Again, I'm inviting you to turn to a scripture. In, scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul has a description of his spiritual life and motivation. And I happen to like the King James use of a phrase here, but I'll read it first in New American Standard, which I have. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 25... Paul says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now, at this very point where it says, everyone who competes in the games, the King James has added a a wonderful little phrase. They said, anyone who is striving for the mastery. Now, if anything describes the young man Saul at this time in his life, here's a man striving for the mastery. He wants to master these things that are on his heart. You know, this matter of being a Pharisee, I'm sure for Paul, if you really look at him, was not a matter of um, reputation or a matter of uh, power or a matter of position It was a passion. He had a desire for the mastery in his life that was driving him on. He, uh, uh, you know, that the Lord in the Gospels treats the Pharisees quite harshly. And the reason for that really is that the Pharisees were zealous, but for the wrong reasons. Now we know from other scriptures that the Lord loves zeal. Zeal for the Lord. That was the very spirit of Elijah. Zeal. And even in the Revelation, as he's talking to the churches, he speaks to the Laodiceans and says, Be zealous and repent. The Lord loves zeal. But the Pharisees, and certainly this young man Saul, has misplaced his zeal. It's a zeal for self-approval. It's a zeal for self-salvation. It's a zeal for self-righteousness. It's a zeal for the mastery, but not a zeal for the Lord. And so we know the Lord treats the Pharisees quite harshly because although among the Jews and among the sects of the Jews, they were the most desirous to follow the Lord, still they had a zeal without knowledge just a zeal for self-justification in their life. Paul had this zeal to the point of obsession. Now, obsession is a real problem among God's people. Obsession is zeal gone wrong. And especially those who were most zealous and most desirous to serve the Lord faced the possibility of obsession. You see, here's the process. Somebody starts pursuing the Lord, but they lay hold of a thing that works. 
something that gives them a place of power, something that makes them feel justified or holy or perhaps loved, something that gains a following. And in your pursuing of the Lord, when you run upon this thing that works, you lay hold, willfully lay hold of this thing instead of the Lord. And what happens in the process of time is you become obsessed with this thing until that which started out right becomes completely wrong. Obsession is a misplaced zeal that's left the Lord and now embraces a thing and grasps and follows after that thing. And and Isaiah the prophet talks about it. And Jesus talks about it. Obsession brings blindness to reality. It's all explained when you watch Saul obsessed for the mastery. And now he has found a thing that works. Persecuting these people of the way. It's given him a sudden, it's given him a mission. It's given him a purpose. It's given him new energy. It's given him an outlet of zeal, you see. And now he's bounding about taking letters from the chief priests. Going about doing his job all in this kind of Obsession, it feeds upon itself and feeds upon itself. And so we find, perhaps it'd be worth it just to look at the scripture there in Acts chapter 8. Just this little phrase. Sorry, uh, chapter 9, we'll take it out. You know he was ravishing your churches in chapter 8, but... Just in chapter 9, verse 1 of Acts. Now Saul, still breathing out threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's obsession. Reality has been left. There's a blindness of passion that's driving and feeding upon itself. Only the Lord can break this kind of obsession. When we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and here one of the many places that Paul shares a testimony about the beginnings. When we read in verse, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, look at a few verses there. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into the service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement deserving all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I, was, I found mercy, so that in me is the foremost sinner. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And here, Paul talks about his obsession as ignorance 
Now, not, uh, not um, uh, unwitting ignorance, willful ignorance in unbelief, blind ignorance. Yet the Lord showed mercy. He knew my obsession. He knew my state. And the Lord came to me. And he sort of explains all the more. Well, the Lord showed mercy to me because he wanted to use me as an example. There was nobody worse than me. And if the Lord could save me, then here's a trustworthy statement. He can save anybody. So Paul testifies at the end of his life, those things that were real to him at the beginning of his life. Well, we come, and let's go back to Acts chapter 26. Let's come to this actual moment where he meets the Lord on the road. And let's just see what he meets, this young man. And in verse 14, after the bright light shone from heaven, And he fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I don't know how you hear these words, but in these words, I don't sense. I think when I was a young Christian, I thought that Jesus was getting back. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? You know, really scared him to death. But uh, I, I realized since those times that Jesus doesn't play games with people. And especially people who have a heart. These words are tender words. There's a little bit of hurt in these words. And these are the first words that Paul ever heard from the Lord. And the Lord was condescending and kind enough to speak to Saul in Hebrew. Has the Lord ever spoken to you, called your name in your own dialect? Here we see the heavenly vision. It's the love of the Lord. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Such tender words, such loving words. And yet it struck Saul to the very soul. You know, Paul, despite all of his obsession, in the end, you know, his greatest desire was someday to stand approved before the presence of the Lord. Surely this was his end. His whole life was given to this. I want to stand approved in the presence of the Lord. And now here he is with the glory of God just forcing him to the ground in the very Shekinah presence of God. And he hears rebuking words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And instead of approval, correction. And in that moment, as Saul was struck by this loving one who is speaking to them, there must have been some light even in that little phrase where the Lord said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Oh, how Paul was humbled by such a statement. Thought to himself, you mean I've been kicking against God all this time? 
And I thought I was serving him. I mean, that's the very nature of obsession. Do you see? The worst part about when somebody's obsessed is they get used by something. And here he'd been used by this blind obsession to persecute these people. And now this heavenly voice is speaking and is saying, you've been kicking against me. You know, Saul, as you in the middle of the night had compunctions of guilt, your conscience was hurting you, you wondered about Stephen, you saw the countenance of an angel on Stephen's face, you began to think and you began to doubt all those inner secret things and even that those drivings of yours, those kind of blind energies of yours, they're all on the wrong track. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And what a fool to kick against God himself. And no matter what our background is, maybe so different from Saul, but I think we all have to testify when the Lord shows up to us so often, isn't this our reality? We've been kicking against the Lord in those things that we've been up to so dedicated and uh, we've been on the wrong track. What a devastation. Fighting against the Almighty. <laughs> I mean, this picture has to be a picture of Jacob wrestling with God at the river. Here is Saul wrestling, wrestling, unrest. And the Lord just says, it's hard for you to kick against me, isn't it? It's just like Jacob. You can't win. Why are you kicking against God? And so Saul was found out. And just like Jacob, he asked the question, well, who are you, Lord? Now, we have to keep in mind that, the, that Paul was hardly ready for the answer. I mean, probably he thought this was either just the Shekinah glory or perhaps the angel of Jehovah. Who are you, Lord? What All this that you're saying, it's too much for me to comprehend, but I sense the light and I know it's divine. And who are you, Lord? And when the Lord said, I am Jesus, those three words were a devastating undoing that Saul never recovered from again. Those three words alone, I am Jesus. Everything fell to the ground. His theology fell to the ground. Who is this divine presence? I am Jesus. What's my life been about? It's all wrong. What's my theology been? It's all wrong. Everything in Saul's life in those three words fell to the ground. Devastation is what I'm saying. There are, all of us, of course, <laughs> think that we're right all the time until we're dealt with otherwise. But there are certain people with a temperament that must be right all the time. Their passion for self-justification will even cause them to lie or blind themselves, even as the Apostle Paul. I must be right. And he certainly had that kind of temperament, don't you think? 
If, if, if ever we see a man in the scripture who had to be right, it was Saul. And here he was completely wrong. Dead wrong. And no, but, 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 but. No extenuating. Well, but you see, I didn't see that. I didn't know my theology. Well, Gamaliel never told me. No, no, no. The whole thing, dead wrong. Every part of your life, dead wrong. All your pedigree that was gained, loss. Paul would have been crushed under the weight of that realization. Except, I would testify to you tonight, that these words were spoken with such love that Paul didn't die. There was such mercy in I am Jesus whom thou art persecuting. There was such a depth of love there that Saul, although he was completely wrong and completely exposed and completely worthy of condemnation and death, somehow found the grace to say, Master, what would you have me to do? It's at this very moment that Jesus, when we read the Old Testament, we see Joseph at that moment that his brothers realized who he was. He spoke to his brothers by name and said, I'm Joseph, I'm Joseph. And his brothers backed away. They couldn't say anything. They were exposed. They were had. They were guilty. And so Joseph had to spend the next few minutes saying, no, 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 listen, please, please come to me. Come to me. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. You meant it for bad. God meant it for good. God used this to do this and to do that. He had to explain just so that the brothers could even breathe again. They were so fearful in the presence of this second one to Pharaoh. And I, I would suggest to you that Saul there on the ground couldn't breathe. Until he finally, in the, somehow in the light now, I don't know, that love was measured in his voice. Uh, to this day, we don't actually know. Did, the, did Saul see the face of Jesus? Could it be that in that face he saw such mercy that he was able not to die, but to say, what would you have me to do? What else could he say? It's interesting, isn't it, that many years later, again, near the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, I'm flashing back and forth here, near the end of his life, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and now Paul is sharing some uh, important things with Timothy, just before he goes on to glory and leaves Timothy with so much of responsibility, and Paul takes up a few verses regarding an obsessed man. What do you do with the brothers who are obsessed with a teaching or a doctrine or an experience? And they're just blind in their beliefs. And it's wrong doctrine. How do you deal with them? And you know how Saul says to Timothy we should deal with them? With utmost patience and mercy. It's amazing, isn't it? In verses um, 24 of Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, 
that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Oh, sometimes I fear we don't understand the mercy of Jesus. He understands the heart of people. And sometimes people who have this problem with obsession or people who have a great heart for the Lord. It's just gone wrong somewhere. And the Lord tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, now you be gentle, you be patient. You share the truth and pray for them. Only God can lead them to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. And take them out of that bondage that they're in. Oh, we can bark and we can yell and we can accuse and we can excommunicate and we can do all kinds of things. But uh, Paul remembers perhaps back there on the road when uh, really there was no excuse to even let Saul live another day and the Lord showed patience and showed mercy. Lord, what would you have me to do? This began the first 11 years, the years of preparation, as we might call it. And the basic watchword of those first 11 years was, wait, and I'll tell you what to do. Now, Paul, Paul was a well-tuned engine, and the Lord told him to idle for 11 years. In the, this, in this um, uh, testimony to King Agrippa, he goes on and tells what the Lord told him, but he's telescoping the events uh, to, spend, to uh, you know, sort of uh, be economical with time before the king. Actually, he said, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the Lord said, go to Damascus and it will be told you what to do. And so not knowing what to do, except that he couldn't see. He was lifted up by his companions who didn't know what was going on, but since something life-changing had taken place, helped Saul get into the city, and the Lord made him wait. Three days, three nights, in darkness, fasting, praying, waiting, nothing, nothing. No voice, nothing. A lot of thoughts. Who is this Jesus? How did I persecute? How could I be so wrong? What's he going to do now? What's going to happen? What should I do? I... Nothing, nothing, nothing. Silence, silence, silence. You know, the Lord, uh, in this preparation time, don't you think with, the, with Saul, just as he has to do with us, the whole thing is this. This heavenly vision has to arrest and take the initiative over if one's life is going to count for God. And Saul had to be taught to wait. He waited three days and and then, of course, unexpectedly, he heard from the Lord again, but it wasn't the Lord speaking a voice from heaven again. It was now just this man he didn't know. A presence came into the room, some man, and he came up and said, Brother Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you, that you might be healed, that you might be filled with the Spirit. The next thing you know, Paul looked up and he could see, and it was this Ananias whom he never met, and he was, maybe had him on the list. Undoubtedly, he, he was obviously one of the righteous men in the assembly. And uh, he looked up and saw this man. Arose and was baptized and took some food, fellowship with the saints in Damascus for a few days and waited. And then that waiting stretched to a few years in the desert. Waiting, waiting. 
You know, biological clock ticking. He's 30 years old, 31. The juices are all there. Wait, wait, wait. Finally, he gets a chance to go down to Jerusalem. Wants to meet the saints. The saints are all hiding in the temple. Barnabas alone had the courage to listen to his testimony and embrace him and then bring him to some brothers. But he was only there a little time and then he started going in the synagogues. He got immediately in trouble and the, the apostles had a word for him. Go back. Go back to Tarsus and wait another eight years. Just wait. But wait, on the road, Ananias, he clarified for me, I, I have some calling to go out to test it. Wait, wait. Eleven years of waiting. Waiting to sort out this devastation that had gone on in his life. He had more problems than just a wrong doctrine. We don't realize the depth of our fallenness. He had to be devastated and then reconstituted, body, soul, and spirit. Even his body had to be marked by a new countenance, starting from the spirit within. And then his, his soul, his whole soul was devastated in this time, and he had to wait on the Lord and discover the new, discover the new creation. He waited before the Lord, waited before the Lord. I mean, not only was he, did he have the wrong doctrines and the wrong understanding, he was eating from the wrong tree. This man knew how to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like no man. He was a genius. The Lord said, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It was total devastation. The whole thing had to be brought down. The whole superstructure. Uh, needless to say, you know, the outside of Saul was completely ruined. The Hebrew of the Hebrews. His Pharisee, his training on the Gamaliel. Gamaliel will be absolutely uh, offended by this. His parents, what are they going to say? His career as a Pharisee, it's over. His ministry, going about with letters of persecution, it, it's done. His whole outward thing. All that was gained to me has now become loss. And that's just the outward devastation. It's really the inward part that was so crushing to Paul. He had to wait for all of these things to be transformed. Well, we could spend a lot of time talking about that, and actually next time we'll share some things that happened during this period of time, but I think we just need to point out the vital principle and lesson of this whole thing. Real vision is devastating. Real vision releases a work of the cross in our lives that continues on through the first stage and the second stage and the third stage of our life. We don't go through a time of discipline and restriction for a little while and then he takes off and sets our lives free and then we just do whatever we want. 
Paul was arrested by this vision. And that arresting was an arresting of the cross that was laid upon Paul and it never left him for the rest of his life. He was devastated. And it was a qualifying devastation. I don't know, brothers and sisters. I know. I just know it's tragically true. There are many people who say they have vision. But they have none of the marks of Jesus. Nor his cross. Those who serve the Lord and say, oh, I have a vision. People who are following somebody's vision. No, no, no. You know, we talk about somebody's vision. Somebody would say, do you have Paul's vision? I hope you don't say yes. Because the whole point is not for you to have Paul's vision. That's not original at all. That's secondhand stuff. Do you have a vision of the Lord Jesus in glory? That's what undoes us. It's not, we've heard some teaching about heavenly vision. We subscribe to it. No, no, that's not it at all. That won't devastate you. But when you see the Lord Jesus himself, it releases this work, this action we call the work of the cross. It's a devastation and, of course, a reconstitution on the other side. Because, of course, resurrection always follows this kind of devastation. So many servants claim to have vision, but their souls manifest overconfidence, cockiness, pride. A willingness to to, uh, uh, divide, fight, conquer. But I tell you, I I think you'll all agree, those who studied the word well enough, you know that Paul from this day on had a limp for the rest of his life. I know some of his uh, accusers accused him of being braggadocia. Writing letters that are bold when really in appearance he was a small fry. There were many kinds of things that were said about the Apostle Paul. But I think when you study the record carefully, when accusations were made and, and uh, made directly about the Apostle Paul, Paul didn't react to it. It's only when those reactions confused and hurt the saints that Paul had anything to say about any of his, you know, uh, detractors. He was a man who had to limp the rest of his life. When it came down to a sort of battle of the apostles, as he writes about in 2 Corinthians, he has to say, I apologize. I just, I don't have that kind of confidence in moxie and pride. I don't go around boasting and stuff. Let me boast about the foolish things I've done, he says. Because I can't do that other thing. Really, a servant of God is not safe until there's some real work of the cross done in their lives. Oh, there's so many who know truth. They know doctrine. They know experience. They have experience. They're good men. Good women. But unless the cross has undone them substantially at the center of who they are, then what they do in the end is not going to add to God's purpose. There's got to be this real work done in the lives. But we can't speak to those who say they have vision, but they don't evidence any cross in their lives. We have to leave that to the Lord. Here is the more fearful 
alternative. It is possible to truly have seen and been apprehended by a heavenly vision and yet disobey. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. The statement in itself means that it's possible. It seems inconceivable because such a heavenly vision, it would seem to so affect the person's life. How could they ever disobey? It's true, a heavenly vision arrests. It's true, a heavenly vision devastates. But even heavenly vision of the Lord himself is not irresistible. And when the issues of the cross start bearing heavily on a person's life, that becomes the point where we want to disobey. When the cross comes down hard or in the second stage relentlessly or in the third stage after years of service, the temptation, disobey the heavenly vision. It's possible to really have seen something and to walk away from it. The cross does get hard to bear and sometimes we get offended by that cross or we start to despise the cross or we start to murmur about the cross or we start to faint all the time. And you know what? We can faint so much and murmur so much and collapse so much that I truly believe, this is just how I feel about it, I believe the Lord will actually lift it off of you. But you'll lose the work that it was doing. In the end, the cross that is received, the the laying hold of that this vision really does in our lives, there must be willingness on our part. The Lord can only arrest us and devastate us for so long until he waits for us to say, yes, Lord, I have been devastated, but devastate me with your devastation. There's got to be some kind of response back to the Lord or it's not the cross. Are we willing to allow the Lord to continue, to continue to work? I fear many of us qualify as the murmurers in the wilderness. Murmuring and fainting and sighing and all of that sort of thing. And so the Lord sort of lifts his hand and says, okay. And he's not satisfied, but sometimes we're satisfied with that, living at a level somewhere in between what the Lord had for us and what we would do taking the easy way. I, I know that you've noticed this, but there's something... There's something unique in the way Paul expresses this phrase when he says it to King Agrippa. He says, I I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, the New American Standard puts this word prove in there. And when I looked at the Greek, uh, there is reason for that. You know, simply put, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But in the actual language of the original, there is this proving that is a factor in this statement 
Saul, uh, Paul makes. Isn't that an interesting statement? I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I see in that phrase something that helps us understand what Paul is really saying. First of all, when he says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, he's sort of implying that there's the Lord out ahead of me and the initiative is out of my hands, really. And now I'm being led, as it were, by this heavenly vision. And I'm following something. I'm following a train, a way, a life that's opening before me. It's really not my initiative or my decision, but I have gone along and followed along as best I could over these years. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. And second of all, I think in that simple phrase, you you sense as if Paul, Paul is saying, the Lord has saddled me with this vision. He has bridled me with this vision and brought me under restraint by this vision so that now as I minister, whether to the Gentiles or to the Jews, I'm always under this restraint. And over the years, I did not throw off those restraints in some kind of false, released liberty. A very popular phrase among ministries today. Be released! But in Paul, there was never that kind of release of body and soul just to say whatever and do whatever. But always a harness, always a bridle, always that restraint that comes under true vision. I did not prove disobedient to that heavenly vision. Well, I don't know if you see those things in it, but at least we would all agree that the third aspect of him saying this uh, phrase is just a simple, modest statement. Today, in our self-affirming world, people like to say, I was obedient to the heavenly vision. Paul would never say that. There's a modesty in I was not disobedient. Why? Why? Because it implies that there were times in my life, if I could speak for Paul, there were times in my life where I wasn't quite sure the way to go. There were times when I was sort of at the end of myself and my rope, and I I really didn't know what the Lord had. There were times in my life where I, I grabbed the initiative, but thankfully the Lord overruled. I would say over my years, not that I am perfect or walked a perfect course, but I have to say the Lord has laid hold of me in such a way and been so faithful to me that ultimately I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now that's a statement made in modesty and in reality. Who's obedient to the heavenly vision? That would imply you did everything, just like that. No, sometimes the way wasn't clear. Sometimes tempted at the end of himself. He felt like he failed, you know. In 2 Corinthians, he sort of implies when he got to Troas and a wide door opened up for ministry and he was so bothered about Titus and the Corinthians that he just said, I I, I can't stay here and preach the gospel. He feels, he implies that that's sort of like a failure, but the Lord turned it into triumph. I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Of course, Paul was tempted 
to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. And of course, you and I are tempted of the same. Just looking for a moment, and it all has to do with the cross and its various workings in our life. The Lord knows how to undo the things that need to be undone. But just to mention those three stages of Saul's life as we finish here, he was tempted in all those stages to be disobedient. In the early stage, what was the temptation? Well, so many things. So many things he could have done in disobedience to the heavenly vision. But I have to say, as I've already said tonight, that here was this turbocharged engine, this doer, this mover, this shaker, this energy-filled, focused person that could take charge of things. He would have been a great man if he'd never been converted. He would have been a great man among the Jews. There's no doubt about it. And yet with all that energy... Here was his cross. Wait. You know, <laughs> you know, Paul had such a grasp of Scripture, even as an early Christian, you, you, you could imagine. He had such a grasp of the Scriptures, and he had such a revelation of the Lord Jesus before him. Imagine him sitting in the, uh, in the synagogue there in the Tarsus, listening to old Joe Blow. And Job, you know, is having a little bit of a struggle reading the Hebrew, and then he kind of misinterprets a few things and comes up with a good point. And they sing a song and go home, and and Paul says to himself, man, I could have preached around that thing for hours. He was a man ready to go, and the Lord wouldn't let him go for 11 years. Oh, that... There's a thoroughbred in the gate of the Kentucky Derby. He has to stand in the gate 11 years. Oh, there's a cross to say, yes, Lord. And to take the lesser point and the lesser part and to do what the brethren tell you to do. Oh, this is a cross and those patient waiting years. And then, and then talk about a temptation to be disobedient to the heavenly vision. How about when you're finally released, as we would say? You know, 11 years later, there in Antioch, praying together with the brothers, the Lord said, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas. And Paul was set apart. Oh, boy, it's like putting a new battery in him. He's ready to go. The race across the world. Boy, he's got plans. And that's, oh, yeah, Barney, let's go to Cyprus first. Then we'll cut up there, go there. I got plans to get to Rome. All this kind of things. And then that big saddle came down on top of him. Said, no. Not that way. Saul says, I want to go. No, let's go there. Let's go preach out in the marketplace of the world. No, go to the synagogues. And so here at this place, and of course, by this time, his mind has been so infused with enlightened scriptures. I mean, the man, the man was just looking for a place to preach. Uh, and uh, and the Lord held him back. And, and, and he had to go in a certain way, in a living way. He had to learn it. He had to learn how to submit to Barnabas on that journey. Oh, that's tough. I mean, sure, Barnabas is older, but Paul's smarter. Oh, but you know, you know there were all kinds of uh, opportunities for Paul to say, sure, sure, Barnabas, you do that, and I'll, I'll carry the luggage. The Lord has his way, you know. Even in those times of fruitfulness, 
He was never without temptation. And then, of course, when he's in jail all by himself and all his friends have left him, and he begins to wonder, you know, is it worth it? Should I just do something for myself? You know, I could just say a few words and get out of this place. I don't need to be dogged by these Judaizers. I could just say, ah, oh, it's okay, do that. And I'd be free. So easy, so easy. The way is so easy to be disobedient to this heavenly vision. Saul couldn't do it. But he was tempted. The qualifying devastation. I just want to encourage brothers and sisters here tonight. We won't speak any longer. I know it's a long journey getting here, but there's much to think about in this. I'm encouraged by the fact that I do believe I know some brothers and sisters here in all three stages of this life of Paul and who have a heart to serve the Lord. And you've seen something of the Lord. There are some here who are, I'm sure, chomping at the bit. I love to watch young people. They have so many options. They don't know what to do. <laughs> Should I be a doctor or a lawyer? But wait, no, first I want to go to Africa as a missionary. Then I'm going to, wait, 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 I got to learn guitar. But then I'm going to, they have so many options, so many things. And then they really see something of the Lord. And the Lord starts to cramp their style. And they have to wait. They go to a fellowship. And the fellowship has a small f. Fellowship. And they have to wait. Just be faithful. They can already preach better than the brothers. The youth group is better than the adult group. But they have to wait, wait, wait. Now, I just would encourage those who are in that stage of waiting and waiting. Just two things. The cross has to do its work, and a more substantial work on you and I than we first believed. But where the cross can truly do its work, in the end, his life can truly flow out like rivers of living water. Will you let him do his work and bear that cross and submit to those people and wait patiently and all that's involved? You know, wherever there's a cross, you know there's going to be that resurrection release. And how precious it will be. You waited for the Lord's time. Many of our young people are tempted, you know. <laughs> uh, I see it there in New York. You know, there's uh, churches all over the place who are just looking for anybody who really can spell. And uh, if, you're, if you're intelligent and you love the Lord, uh, you're prime material. And uh, there's always uh, these little calls going out for youth ministers, you know. And, uh, and, and, you know, you can jump into something early like that. I'm sure the Lord will use you. Or why don't we wait and see what the Lord has for you? It's wonderful. And could I encourage you also with this, just a sidelight, but you know, it was during these first 11 years that Paul was taken in ecstasy up to the third heaven where he saw things. It's not lawful for him to repeat. You know, when we talk about this waiting and this working of the cross, there is something bittersweet about the cross because when you're under the discipline, there's also moments of sweetness and preciousness and intimacy and wonder. 
things where the Lord tells you secrets and tells you not to tell another person. And that was during these first 11 years uh, that uh, Paul saw these things. So don't be discouraged. You wait for the Lord. See what he has for you. And the Lord will raise you up if you're faithful and use you. But first, the qualifying devastation. And then I'm sure that there's some people here who were running the race and perhaps running well, but have run into a lot of frustration and a lot of circumstantial problems that have made your ability to run difficult. And I would just like to challenge you, knowing how difficult our lives are in this world, If the Lord could speak to you, would he say, it's hard for you to kick against the goads? I honestly believe if the Lord does not goad us, we'll all go right into the world. Prosperity and job promotions and the desire for house and home and security and one thing and another just leads us right out of his purposes for us. And I pray that those who really have that heart to serve the Lord will not allow anything. If it's something the Lord is, is poking you and poking you about, then recognize it's the Lord. Those circumstances and frustrations, do you think it's just your circumstances? Isn't the Lord trying to get at something here? We have the truth of the scriptures to tell us that the Lord actually sends out people in his good time, some at a young age and some in mid-years and some in the older years. Recently, I was reading some of uh, C.T. Studd's biography. And uh, he did his most fruitful work when he was over the hill. He was broken from his uh, years of missions in China and India. And he really should never have gone to Africa. His doctors told him, you'll never come back. You won't make it. The trip is too tough. Your heart's too bad. I think he had already had heart attacks and real problems with his heart. He said, no, nah, the Lord told me to go. I'm going. And my, what a revival they had in the Congo. He found his home. He found his life. If I'm not mistaken, he was, he was over 60 at that time. And he found a new beginning. Well, all that's to say... Only the Lord knows how to move us about. Only the Lord knows his timing. But could we ask the Lord to give us an open heaven that if we've seen something of the Lord, he might refresh that vision. And when we see that vision of the Lord, may we not once again hear the love that's behind the words. And if the Lord brings to us rebuke, may we hear the mercy behind the rebuke. The Lord loves his children who have a heart for him. We are such foolish people. And I must say, to my own hurt, I've been used by other than the Lord to cause division and hurt and problems. My own blindness. My own folly. Oh, that there would be a people who have seen the Lord and been captured by his love and treat other people mercifully, 
and allow the Lord to do this devastating work that's so necessary to qualify them for service. Today we have a simple remedy, you know. It's called, uh, I want the Lord to slay me in 10 minutes. Now we have such services. You can come up after a meeting is over and somebody will tap you on the head. You can fall down and be slain by the Lord. And stand up 10 minutes later and I've heard people testify so and the Lord has called you to a ministry and sent you out and taken care of all your problems. Now, that's sort of the instant slay market that we have here in our mentality. Now, who is willing to be slain by the Lord for life? To be slain by his love, to be slain by his mercy, to be slain by a vision of his face. And for the rest of our lives, to be slain. Now that, I believe, is the Bible view. If we would be servants of God and serve not only in his kingdom, but his purpose in this generation, then we need to see the glory of the Lord as he truly is. And we also need to take the cross that such a vision has inherent within it and allow that cross to do its work. And we find in the end that we're part of his purpose and adding something to what his desire is for. How the Lord desires his people. Oh, that we would come to him, see afresh that vision that he captured us with even in the early days and allow his work to be revived. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would revive your work among us. I am constrained to believe that there's many dear brothers and sisters here who have seen a vision of the Christ of heaven, who've seen a vision of the corporate Christ, who've seen a vision of the Christ universal, who've seen a vision of the Christ of glory. I do believe that you've given us by your Holy Spirit, such revelation of who you are. O oh Lord, but now the proving. Lord, as you lay your devastating work upon us, undoing us, exposing us, taking away those confidences that we previously had, taking our gains and putting them on the liability column, Oh, Lord, would we still follow you? And again, I'm constrained to believe that there are those who are here even this weekend as foolish, as many mistakes, as obsessed, as stubborn as we've been. More than anything, we want your heart in one day to stand approved in your presence. So, Lord, if that means today we need to stand in your merciful rebuke, then, Lord, rebuke us. And Lord, if it means that we've been kicking against your goads, then tell us and we will cease. And Lord, show us, if you'll just show us again that all that is happening to us, it's Jesus. Oh, speak to us of yourself. 
We need not some kind of vision that's just a pattern of outward things. We need again to go to the fountainhead and see the love of God that would arrest a sinner such as I and show mercy in order that we may be a useful vessel in these days. Help us, Lord, all of us. Teach us, speak to us, show yourself to us in these days. What a marvelous time we'll have in your presence. We do believe, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.